0: One Hope Church Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have made and that you have given to us. And Lord, in many ways, it's a solemn day, um, a hard day for many people in our world. And so we just ask, dear God, that you would comfort um, the hearts of um, those who are hurting today. We are reminded today, Lord, that our world um, is angry and it is broken and it is hurting. Um, Lord, we are also reminded today that there is great joy to be found in you and your son Jesus. We see the events at Pentecost and the result of that this morning. As we look into your Word. We pray that you would instruct us and give us just a great sense of purpose um, as a community, as a church family, and as individuals. And Lord, that you would help us um, to be able to be both reverent and joyful at the same time. And where it seems like a, a difficult um, task, Lord we ask that you would help us today, that you would lead us and guide us and instruct us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. As I said, uh, you know, 9-11, if um, you're in kindergarten or above, you probably remember exactly where you were when you first heard the news or saw on the television, you know, what was, you know, happening. Um, I remember I was doing some Bible study um, in a coffee shop. You know, right downtown on College Avenue, um, and there was a little TV in there, and um, on that TV watched the first you know tower come down, and then the coffee shop closed, and um, you know some of that day is very vivid, some of that day is a, a blur. Um, you know, of course, we, we remember um, if you saw it with your with your eyes, even on the on the television, um, you remember those towers coming down, you remember the uncertainty. Um, and the despair of the day. Um, that night, I, you know, this was before Claire and I got married, but we were dating. And um, remember, we were taking a walk, you know, and just constantly the, the, the noise of aircraft, you know, flying overhead was just, a, was just constant. And it seemed like that just continued on and on and on. And so that day, um, you know, again, had many you know repercussions. There were 2,996 people uh, that died, you know, on that day, um, whether in an airplane or in one of the towers or at the Pentagon. Um, and then the effects of that began to be immediately immediately felt by families in other parts of the world. Um, you know, and, and I'll never forget some days. Uh, some years later, as um, Osama bin Laden was, was finally killed, my Muslim, seeing my Muslim friend um, Khalil the next day, and the excitement and exuberance that he had over the death of Osama bin Laden. And um, I was a little bit shocked by it, and we were talking, and he said, he was, but he said, you know, I'm so happy because this man had caused the, the death of so many Muslims around the world. Um, through you know the repercussions that came from that that event, and so I, I feel a need to remind us this morning that um, you know a story like that has more than one voice. It has more than one uh, perspective. It has, there's more than one picture to it. Um, you know, and so in some ways, while as an American, if you're an American, you may feel that in a certain way, uh, you also need to for a, for a moment take off those glasses and put on the glasses of a, um, an Afghan family or an Iraqi family um, that felt the repercussions of, of those events. Um, and it's, it's, I think if we're going to be true to our calling as followers of Jesus, that, that, is, that, that is a necessity. You know, it's a necessity to put ourselves in the shoes of other people and to, to try to understand, not that we can always fully understand, but to try to understand the perspective um, of other people and um, how they see, um, you know, certain, you know, events. And, you know, depending on your social location, you know, where you were born and your ethnicity and all these different things, you know, the same event can mean very different things to to different people. Um, And so we need to to have some humility um, about ourselves as we, we think about those things. Um, And even today, I mean, these effects are still being felt. You know, over 1,000 other people have already died from just breathing in the debris, you know, of that day. And and probably within five years, there'll be more deaths from the repercussions, the health repercussions than actually happened, you know, on that day. Um, And so it's something that's still being, you know, felt and being uh, dealt with. So we have, you know, again, this this great juxtaposition this morning, As we think about 2,996 people who lost their lives on that day, 9/11, 15 years ago, and we think about the approximately 3,000 people who were added to the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And this morning we're in Acts chapter 2, verses um, 42 through 47 is uh, what we'll be studying this morning. But I just want to read verse, beginning verse 39, just to have a little bit more of the context. But just as a reminder. Um, you know, on this day, the, the first you know, 120 or so followers or 120 followers of Jesus are together. Um, it's the day of Pentecost. So there's people from many different nations in Jerusalem. And God comes upon them in power. Um, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they begin speaking in these other languages that they, you know, did not learn. Uh, but God gave them this unique ability um, to speak these languages. And so they're speaking to people um, from all over the place. And these people are, are amazed because they're hearing the word of the, God in their language. There's others that are there and saying, This is nonsense. These people are just drunk. And Peter gets up and says, No, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. These men are not drunk. You know, this is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And he gives this message in, in Greek because that would be the, the common language that everybody there you know, would understand. And he ends it in verse 39. It says, for the, for the promise, and it's ultimately the promise of Jesus, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are fall off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day, that day about 3,000 souls. Um, and so that's just a powerful, you know, amazing scene. We really call this, even though there were followers of Jesus before this time, we really refer to this as the birth of the church, the, the beginning of, of the life of the church. And you'll notice in verse 41 that the first thing that they, those who received the word of God did, who you know, received the message that Peter gave about Jesus being, you know, the Savior and King, um, you know, they were, they were baptized That was, you know, they believed and they were baptized And you'll see that as one of the themes of the book of Acts That's just a common ref, refrain um, That baptism follows belief Because belief is that inward profession, confession of the heart That, you know, I'm a sinner and I, I need to be forgiven And I need Jesus And then baptism is that public profession of the same thing uh, We're planning to have a baptism um, two Sundays from now um, and all who believe in Jesus who are um, not, have not been baptized yet are invited to be baptized and to make that public profession of faith. And so if you're interested in doing that, please talk to us. We're, we have this benefit of you know, walking you know, 100, 150 feet back into the woods, and we have a nice river there, and that's where we do our baptisms, and it's a, a beautiful um, time of celebration uh, that we have together. But now let's read verses 42 through 47 of Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read it from the ESV this morning, um, and it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's awesome. Very, very powerful, powerful phrase, uh, passage here, paragraph. And it's this summary, and it, kind of, it ends kind of this first section. There's, there's ultimately seven little summaries That um, Luke gives throughout the the book of Acts, and they're all really good news, um, good reports of of what has happened. And this one ends, um, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And that's what we'll end with this morning. But I think that's just important to keep in our minds and our frames, in our framework as we go throughout the whole book of Acts, that Acts is a really, really positive book. Yeah, there's some bad things that happen. There's some difficult things that happen in the book of Acts. But as a whole, it is an extremely positive, positive book. And and Luke has seven times where he'll kind of end a little section and give a summary. And even if there's something really bad that happened in in that section of the book, it's going to end with a a positive report overall that God is moving and, and working and that there's reason to be joyful And so we see that these first followers of Jesus, so now you have about 3,120 followers of Jesus here in in Jerusalem. And, you know, there's probably more than that. Um, You know, we don't think that every follower of Jesus was there, you know, at Pentecost with the 120. And certainly there were others who had made, uh, you know, who had believed in Jesus um, that are in other places. You know, it's even the man who had... um, been freed from, from demons and the Lord told him to go into the area of Decapolis and to, to share what God had done in his life, to share there, you know, we don't have any indication that he's here in Jerusalem. I mean, it's, that would be just pure speculation, kind of either way, but we have this, you see all the people that, that um, were touched by Jesus in his, you know, ministry, uh, we know that it had a powerful effect on people. But verse 42 says, um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, um, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and of prayers. And there's a couple things in here that we need to, to look at. The first thing we just want to notice is that they, demote, they devoted themselves. You know, they had devotion um, to be committed to. You know, and this is a powerful idea, a powerful concept. You know, when you're committed to something deeply and strongly, that means you, you know, it, it, it has an effect at the deepest core of who you are, um, and it's going to dictate other things in your life. And other things in your life are going to revolve around your deepest commitments. Let me just say that one more time. Other things of your life are going to revolve around your deepest commitments. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let's just stop there for a second. The apostles' teaching is their, their doctrine. You know, doctrine is important. What we believe is important because what we truly believe we tend to live out. You know, and sometimes there's a difference between our um, intellectual acknowledgements and our true beliefs. Our true beliefs. So, you know, you have sometimes people will be, um, you know, educated in a scientific, you know, sort of way in, in a community that is not used to that. And they agree, yes, you know, this virus, these things, cause these things. But when their child gets sick, a lot of times, they're not running to the medical doctor for an antibiotic. They're running to a witch doctor, because intellectually they know one thing, but at the deepest core of their beliefs and, and ideas and commitments, there's a there's a something else that's domineering over that. Um, and it can take, you know, it, ha- it has to be like a true shift. And so, what I think we have here with these these people that we see throughout the book of Acts is they make a true shift from their commitments to the Old Covenant and to the Mosaic Law to making that shift toward you know, Jesus and the New Covenant that is in his blood. Um, and while they make that full shift, shift, what we'll see throughout the books of Acts is there's points in times where there's still somewhat of confusion, where they're still holding on to an old idea hasn't been replaced yet by the, the way of Jesus. And so that's where we have to have a lot of grace you know, in people's, people's lives because while people oftentimes you know, come to know Jesus in a, in a dramatic fashion, that doesn't mean that everything in life changes you know, at that moment. Sometimes there has to be an, an unpacking, an unraveling, um, an unlearning before a new learning can come and to be about. You know, Doctrine is important. What you believe is important. Um, and then we have you know, the fellowship here... Um, and the breaking of, of bread. And really, those things um, in the Greek are uh, really connected. They're actually, in the Greek, there isn't a, there isn't the and. Um, it's just like fellowship, breaking of bread. And these things are connected with one another. And that makes sense because fellowship and, you know, eating meals throughout human history has been, you know, intricately linked. You, you know, you read through the Old Testament, and, you know, when... When something is going to, you know, a covenant is going to be made or, or there's going to be a, an agreement between people, I mean, you almost always find food. You know, a lot of times even when you see about the sacrifices, there's a part of that sacrifice that's often misunderstood, like missed is that part of that sacrifice is then the meal after the sacrifice. You know, they're not just like throwing the animal away and wasting it. You know, there's, a, there's a fellowship that comes... You know through the the eating of food um and, and you know food is is always a very um you know i think it's an important thing in in every culture, but in some you know more than more than others, I think some other cultures have a lot more uh significance placed on that than than we do um you know and and we won't go into all of that you know right now but but food is important, and we saw that you know with The whole story of the word of God, you know, when Adam and Eve fall in in the garden, food is at the center of it. Don't take of this fruit. You know, and in the taking of that food, they broke fellowship with God. And then, you know, Jesus, when he takes the bread and the cup, when he breaks the bread at the last supper with his disciples, that's fellowship. That's fellowship with them. You know, when he's on the road to Emmaus and he breaks the bread and their eyes are open, you know, that's not a, you know, that's not just a coincidence. It's like God, you I know, mean, Jesus is teaching here. I mean, when Jesus gives the bread and the cup and says, do this in remembrance of, of me, it's it's understandable he does so with food. He does so with bread and a cup, things that we, we you know, have every every day and that are already a, a part of our lives but have such a, a greater significance of meaning. And so this idea of, of fellowship, um the fellowship and the breaking of you know the breaking of bread being intimately linked together is is really hard you can't really uncouple these things or make them, you can't put a couple, you can't make it an and it's it's really together. Um, I think the NLT version, though it's, it's taking a little bit of liberty here, but the New Living Translation just um, called, you know, it just has it in the text here as the Lord's Supper. It just has it in the text there, and I, that's that's I think um, you know maybe a step of interpretation, but I think it's I think I think it's correct. I think it's accurate. Um, I think we also need to recognize that just like Jesus had the Passover, you know, they had the Passover meal, and then he takes the bread and the cup, that we see it throughout the New Testament when the believers would come together. You know, it was an evening thing. Um, this was not a, a, a day that was recognized as a holy day or a special day by other groups of people, and they're the, the minority. So, you know, they're coming after work. Sunday is a day of, was a day of work. The first day of the week, a day of work for them. So they'd come after work, and they'd eat a meal together, and then they'd take the bread and the cup together and remember Jesus. Um, I think is what we, we, would be the common um, event in, that we see um, in the early church. and Because we'll see later that they have this also from house to house. You know, so you can have it collectively. Um, with all of them together, you can have it house to house. But they devoted themselves to this. The breaking of bread is a central part. The Lord's Supper is a central part uh, because Jesus really gave us—he gave us two ordinances, he, and, he, and he gave us an example. He gave us two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. You know, do these? He wanted us to do these things. You know, that's clear. And he gave us an example of washing feet. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with having a foot washing. We haven't had one in a really, really long time. Some of you would never have experienced one. You know, with us, but we have done that historically in our in our past, and there's nothing wrong with that by any means, because it's a it's a step of humility. It's not something that we're commanded to do or commanded to do on a regular basis, but it's a it's a humble thing to do, and, and God's people should be humble people. And that's one of the things that Jesus wants to teach us in all of those lessons, that Jesus wants us to be humble people. So then we have prayers, and our prayers show that we are dependent on God and that we can't do things ourselves. And they also show our thankfulness, you know, to God. Uh, so life, the prayer, we've seen it multiple times through the book of Acts. What were the first 120 doing in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came upon them? They were praying. And so then what is, now that they've grown to over 3,000, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to pray. And so we see that. And that's, that's really good for us to recognize so moving on to verse 43, it says, All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So the power that was evident at Pentecost now continued. Um, it continued through the apostles because it was important for God to establish that what he was doing through these people was, was authentic. It was, it was real. These people weren't just making up stories, but that they had a spiritual authority um, that was given by God. Not, you know, they didn't get it from going, you know, going to class and getting a certificate, and getting a piece of paper or a diploma. It came from God, and that's important that we understand. Um, so it's not something they just made up, but this is legitimate. And it says, you know, and all came upon every soul. I mean, they're, they're amazed at the things that are, that are happening. Verse 44, all, the, all who believed were together and had all things in common. The first disciples of Jesus shared their lives together, the early church, and they shared their life together. It was a deep and rich community, and they shared their resources with one another. That's just factual what they did. It's what they did. And so then it says in verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Again, this is what they did. Now, this is where we always have this conversation um, in studying the book of Acts because people freak out that, you know, we're going to teach communism or something like that. So this is where people always give this caveat of that this is a descriptive passage and not necessarily prescriptive. You know, a prescription is like from a doctor, like you're sick, you need to take this medicine. He writes you a prescription and you go to the pharmacy and you receive that medicine, right? And so that's something that you are told you need to do this. And that's different from something that's descriptive, which said, "This is what these people did." Unfortunately, though, a lot of times I think that description is given because we have to be aware that people will manipulate and misuse scripture. So cult, you know, leaders will use this verse or these verses and say, "Now see, you need to write, hand, you know, hand over the title to your to your vehicles, and you need to." You know, your your house now needs to be in my name, and you you need to do this, and you need to give me authority over your bank accounts. And that's what cult. You know, that's a sign of a cult. Um, and, and the thing about that is that it's a it's a force activity. Here we see this as strictly a volunteer activity, that people were willingly and joyfully giving, you know, selling what they had and, and giving it away. But what I don't want us to do is by acknowledging that it's descriptive and not prescriptive is just to give ourselves an easy pass and just say, well, that's what the you know, first followers of Jesus did and they had their reasons for doing that and we don't have to worry about any of that today, now moving on. That's also a dangerous way to approach scripture. You know, I think it's something we have to look at seriously and understand, because there are some key principles that we can learn from that that are still very applicable for us today, individually and collectively, you know, as a church. The first is that it's it's all gods. The first followers of Jesus, you know, the the early church, let me just say that, the early church had this understanding that it's all gods. That not, like, not 10% of it was gods, but it was all gods. They were stewards of it. And they, you know, were responsible before God of what they did with it. But it's all God's. If you still have in your mindset this old carryover that, you know, you write 10%, your duty, you know, is done and you're good to go, that's not the way of the early church. And that's not the way of the, really, of the teachings of Jesus or of the apostles. That's something that was old covenant. And then that was the obligation. Then there was voluntary stuff all over the place on top of that just for the record, because I think sometimes we misunderstand even the Old Testament on that. And the, the reason that that's important is because it's, it's not a, even so much about the amount of money or the percentage of money, but it's an indication of the, the human heart. That he, you know, the human heart is always looking to do the bare minimal. Not always, but many times. In the flesh, it's like, okay, what meets my obligation? And so if people come to this understanding, 10% meets my obligation— and then I'm, I'm done, if that's, that's the minimum and that's what I do, well, that's not the sort of heart that the early church had. We don't want to have a different sort of heart than the early church had. Because They had a heart of sacrificial giving. Also give, you know, they also didn't just divide everything and say, we're going to just share everything equally. People still had different amounts of resources and they had different needs and things were given to what people needed. And so um, that's a, that is a principle there to take care of people and to say, what do, what do people you know, need? Another key principle is that God's people should be the most sacrificial and the most giving people of all. And it only makes sense, you know, if you have a savior who gave his life and gave everything for his people, that his people would then respond to God's generosity by being generous people themselves. Another key principle that if Jesus says to, we should all be ready at any moment to sell anything and up to everything and give it away. That always puts again the question in my heart, if Jesus asks me to do that, am I willing to? Now if the answer is no, then that indicates, okay, there's something not right in my perspective of how I view stuff. And so there's something not right about in my faith of God. There's something not right in my, my value of material things. Being the question there, if you have the clear command of the Lord in your life to get rid of something that you hold dear, or everything, is there the willingness to do it that's still a key principle? That principle doesn't change based on whether this is descriptive or prescriptive. And it is descriptive. And it's also to be expected that at different moments in our lives, God will direct us towards a greater sacrifice. That's where I don't think that life is static in terms of, you know, you write the same amount on every every month for your whole life, or just, you know, the same percentage for your whole, you know, every moment, every week, month, year of your entire life. Because, I you know, I think we have to look at that and say, well, Where's the faith in that? Where, I mean, where's the, the time or the moment where, where God is directing to, to do something more than that? Because if it's, a, if it's not a static relationship but a dynamic relationship, then we should expect that at certain points, even on the things of material things, that God is going to prick our hearts and say, you need to, you need to, to do something about X. And that's going to cost you. Yeah, and this goes, this is really, um, you know, this is an example. It's certainly not um, in any way a totality. We're just talking about material things. Life is much more than material things. But this is a part of the explicit vision of our church, and our, the explicit vision of our church is to say yes to Jesus at any cost. So that could be any material cost, that could be any cost of time, any, any cost of any other thing. Now, we know that many of us are not, there in our walk with the Lord yet to say yes to Jesus at any cost. Like we're at saying yes to Jesus at some cost. We're not all at the point of saying, you know, yes to Jesus all the time. We say yes to Jesus some of the time, right? You know, so we understand that our ideal and our vision, I mean, it's lofty. To say yes to Jesus at any cost, I mean, that is a lofty vision. That is a lofty ideal. That's way, way up there. And in a certain sense, you know, we we would be difficult to find anybody who attained that at all all days of their life. You're really going to find that. You might find somebody who makes the ultimate sacrifice in terms of giving their life, but that was a one day decision usually, that happened in a moment. But if you live 70, 80 years, to say that you said yes to Jesus at any cost, and that was the mode of operation of your, of your whole life, would be pretty, a pretty incredible claim. Pretty bold. That's our, that's our ideal individually and collectively. That's the vision. That's what we're striving for. And it needs to be way out there in order for you know a way high sort of thing, in order to be something that calls us and motivates us, you know, in, in how we that it's going to change how we live our lives. But again, we were just talking for a moment about the generosity of physical things, but there's an application to the generosity of the of spiritual things, certainly, and we see this throughout the scriptures. But, you know, we as followers of Jesus, of all people, should be generous. I mean, we should be generous in sharing the gospel. I mean, we're the ones who have it. You know, that's an uncomfortable truth about 9-11 is that, you know, how many of those people, when they met their maker, were, were welcomed in through faith or faced, you know, faced judgment? That's an uncomfortable truth. Now, I don't have an answer to that. But I would hope that in in light of that day, just as one of many reminders as death abounds in our world every day, that we would be reminded of the importance of sharing the gospel. And one of the things that that remembering that day does is, you know, that was sudden. Nobody went to work that day. or Nobody got on that plane that day thinking, this is my last day. This is it. It came upon them suddenly. It came upon them suddenly. And it can come to any person suddenly. And so there is a sense of, of urgency, and a sense of urgency to be generous with the gospel. That's not something that we're putting off in our conversations with people, in our our relationships with people, but that we want them to know the joy of our generous Savior and to enter into his abounding grace and that we also need to be abounding in grace and abounding in grace towards one another because we all need grace every last one of us we're all fallen, we're all broken we should be generous in dispensing mercy in making peace in sharing time and telling truth in dishing out love you know, we should be very generous and these are all things that we can seek to be generous with. We give them as gifts to other people, gifts of a spiritual nature. Now, I know at this point there sometimes comes, you know, objections of, you know, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm not an evangelist. You know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm not, you know, the, I don't have the gift of, of encouragement just to be somebody who, you know, <laughs> generously gives encouragement to others throughout, throughout the day. You know, it's odd that we do that with spiritual things. I mean, yes, there are spiritual gifts, and yes, people are given a certain aptitude, but I think it's kind of, isn't it kind of odd that we would use those, not having a particular gift as an excuse for not living out certain attitudes and, and practice? Because imagine this, imagine your bank, says, I'm sorry, we're foreclosing on your, on your home, because you haven't paid your mortgage for the last six months, and your excuse is, "Well, you know, I've just never been really that gifted at administrative tasks. I've never been that gifted at administrative things." So, you know, I mean, come on, you know, I me—it's mean, just not my gift. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, I mean, in, I mean, life doesn't work that way. In, in other areas of life, it just doesn't work that way. But in the spiritual things, because there are people that are specifically gifted, and the Holy Spirit does give particular gifts, we can say, well, I don't have the gift of generosity. I don't have the gift of giving. Or I don't have the gift of encouragement. And use that as an excuse not to do it. And I, I think that that's really kind of backwards. Because there, there is a, you know, there's got to be some sort of baseline expectation on all of these things because the fruit of the Spirit. Is love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, long suffering, you know these things. fruit of the spirit is those things, so if this fruit of the spirit, if the spirit of God is living in us actively working, then we should see these things to at least some minimal amount, right now. But we want more than that because, again, our, our goal is to say yes to Jesus at any cost, even cost of our, of our own selves, you know. And that's one of the things, when I look back at 9-11, that really moves me is the sacrifice that some made, you know, on that day. Um, I particularly think about a young man, man named Willis Crowther, who at the time in 9-11 was 24 years old. Um, you may have heard his story. He's known as the, the young man with the red bandana. Um, when he was a young boy, his father always carried a handkerchief, and he always had a comb or something that he'd wrap in a, in the span, in a bandana. And then when he was six years old, his, his dad gave him a red bandana. And that became his trademark. He had it with him every day, wherever he went. And he was, he was an athletic young man, and so when he played sports, he played football, you know, he put that bandana on, you know, and then he put his helmet on on top of it. Um, he played lacrosse at Boston College, and the same thing. You know, he'd have that bandana on. And that was his, like, his trademark, basically. People knew, knew him by that. Uh, when he was 16, he was a junior volunteer fire, firefighter. His dad was a volunteer firefighter. Um, he was also, you know, very intelligent. He graduated from Boston College with honors, degree in economics, and he went to be an equities trader and was in one of the towers on, on 9-11. And when, it, when, it had first, you know, when the plane hit, he called his mom and said, oh, "You know, I want you to know I'm okay. And he hung up his, his phone and he started going down. And there were people he met along the way who needed help. And so he started to get those people out. But he kept going back up to find more people. And they said people remembered who he was because he had his, his red bed on and actually used it to cover his mouth so he could help him breathe. And 12 people count their lives that they're alive today because of that young man. But he didn't make it out. And his body was found along with several firefighters as he was working with them. To the end. That's, you know, the ultimate sacrifice. And that's, you know, that's not the sort of story we like because in all, we, we like the movies where the hero does his job and he does the heroic thing and then he lives at the end. And everybody throws him up on his shoulder. They, you know, have some big party for him. But that's not real life all the time. That's real life some of the time. But a lot of time our real heroes... Die In their heroic acts And on that day he counted the lives of other people As more important than himself And after saving You know if he had just saved one And had ran out People would have called him a hero still right He would have done more than his duty If he had saved one And he didn't have any special obligation Because he was just a civilian He was an equities trader. You can say yes, he had some training, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a New York firefighter. He he kind of hated his he found out he kind of hated his desk job and thought about being one, trading it in. But he ended up making an ultimate sort of sacrifice, and you know, I'm afraid today, just in society, our society in general. Uh, and in the church, we're we're not raising people to be like this. But this man is an exception because, you remember, a few years ago in our own community, there was a, a off-duty uh, police officer. She was in Kroger, just doing shopping, and this man with you know mental, heavy mental problems, um, thought she was looking at him funny or something like that, and he had a knife and he started stabbing her. And college guys said afterwards it was a terrible thing to see. Terrible thing to see. You know, we have stories when somebody gets attacked on a subway by one person and you have on each end of the subway huddled groups of men and women, terrified and doing nothing. Because they're not willing to make a personal sacrifice on behalf of someone else. And I think it's a particular, I mean, I think it's a problem in general, but I think it's a particular problem of, as a culture, we're we're not raising men anymore. Our percentage of men to males isn't so great. You know, male is biological. Male is biological. Being a man, having men in a culture, that's different. That's different. But what I would posit to those of us, especially those of us who are raising young boys, is basically what they see is what, is what you get. Does that make sense? What they see is what you get. It wasn't by accident that Welles Crowther ended up being the man that he became a man willing to give himself, his life for others. He saw the example of his father he saw the example of other men in the community. So some young men will see the example of their father, and they're going to follow that, and that's a pretty strong, it's kind of hard to get past that one. But then times there will be men who see another man and say, well, I mean, just frankly, I'd rather be like that man. And we'll rise up. But there's always going to be some influence that helps and causes a Somebody to be firm in their convictions and to be willing to stand when others are not standing to willing to go the opposite direction when the crowd is fleeing and it does bring us a question I think culturally but also in the in the church in the church i'm what i'm afraid of is that we're not we don't set a, a good enough example of sacrifice and commitment, and then we're kind of surprised when all these You know, kids actually, you know, become adults and run off to college and don't care that much about Jesus. Well, if Jesus was superfluous to the parents, he's probably going to be superfluous to the kids. If if Jesus is an add-on, he's not the center of life, but he's an add-on to life. And and we do the Jesus, we follow Jesus when 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 it's good for us. Well, that's what we're going to get. That's what we're going to get. But if we live it out and our children see us make sacrifices and see us follow Jesus fully and they see us being generous with our resources and with the sharing of the gospel and with grace and mercy and peace and time and truth and love, then I believe we'll get what they see will get what they see. And I know there's some of you, especially some of you men who are here or will hear this message uh, through the podcast that, you know, you're, you know you're, there's, a, there's a disconnect between who your father is and who you want to be, but you have that tremendous opportunity, always talking to young men who are from situations like this, about this tremendous opportunity to set a new course, to set a new standard, and to change things for generations to come in a family, and that's a powerful, powerful opportunity. Because what happens at at Pentecost with these people who became to serious followers of Jesus, that that's going to have that, had reper, that has repercussions all the way to us today. That has repercussions all the way to us today and their commitment and devotion and their sacrifice. So let's finish this up, verses 46 and 47. Um, First part of 47. So, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking their bread in homes, they received their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, one question might be asked is, why was the early church attending the temple every day? Like, didn't God start a new covenant? Wasn't that, you know, done with? And the answer to those questions is, you know, yes. But they went for a very significant reason because their their hope was that all of Israel would be saved. Their hope was that all of Israel would come, you know, to to faith in Jesus. You know, the, the Apostle Paul goes as far as to say, you know that if he could be damned, in that in exchange for his all of his countrymen to be saved, that he would take that trade. He says in the book of Romans, that's intense. He's saying he would make the ultimate sacrifice if it meant the rest of his nation would come to faith in Jesus. So this was why they went, is because they're still, you know, their their brothers, their sisters are in the temple. And that's where they're going to go and, and reach them and share, you know, we, and, and use even what's there as examples. You see this. Let me tell you how Jesus fulfills that. Let me tell you, tell you what, about how great our king is. The hope of Israel that has been our expectation now for a long time is, it's happened. And it's here. And we've entered in. And we've experienced it. And you can now, too. I believe that's why they were going back to the temple. Every day, it wasn't nostalgia. It wasn't trying to hold on to a, a, a dead tradition, but it was to be a blessing to other people. And so it says that they um, receive their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Yours might say gladness or generosity. Um, we'll talk about that. There, you know, there's. Um, NASB, gladness and sincerity, NKGV, gladness and simplicity, ESV, uh, glad and generous hearts. So let, let's talk about the first part, the gladness. Um, in our modern English, to me, gladness sounds a little bit subdued. It sounds a little weak, actually. Um, that, it may just be me on that. But when I hear, like, how you doing? You know, Well, I'm glad so-and-so happened. I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm happy, but it's a, it's a subdued happy it's a subdued joy. Um, it doesn't really, for me at least, it doesn't, it doesn't really kick it. But in the Greek, um, the word actually means exaltation. And it has to do with an utterance of sounds expressing great joy. That's, that, that's gladness in the biblical use of the word. Was an utterance of sounds expressing great joy means there's a, you know, if you go into to their homes... You're going to a, you know, a meeting on the Lord's Day for, you know, to take the bread and the cup. You're going to know you're in a place where people are the utterance of sounds expressing great joy. Why would they express sounds of great joy? Because well they've got a king who's had a great victory. So it makes sense. It makes sense that a great victory in Jesus should be responded to with great joy. So, you know, when we come to the table, it's that it's that mixed, it's a mixed deal. You know, we come to the Lord's table with a great reverence, but also with great joy. And sometimes we can you know, we can go so far on the reverence side that we miss the joy. And go so far on the joy side we miss the yeah. reverence, we can't really afford to do either of those. We've got to hold those things in tension. We have great reverence and great joy, because yes, it was a great cost to our Savior that put him on the cross for us, but he had a great victory. And he had victory over sin, and the grave couldn't hold him. He had victory over death. So how of we, of all people, could not have exaltation to our king, the utterance of sounds expressing great joy? How could we not have that? We have a triumphant king. In the second part, um, it just comes from a difficulty of translating the word affalot, which literally means smooth or plain. It's used metaphorically um, for simple, sincere, or humble. Uh, and so if we go back to the root of the word, I think it, it's better to take it and in suppose a in to generosity. I think generosity has already been plenty covered earlier in the text. But with a, a simplicity which denotes the opposite of complexity and it denotes some, some unity, I believe. And not that we would agree on every minutia of every point, but on Jesus being Savior and King and our purpose, our purpose as individuals, our purpose as a church, there should be no, no doubt that we would all be committed to living obedient and purposeful lives under the authority of King Jesus. To that, there should be no question mark. There should be no question about that. That that's our purpose. And it says they had favor with all the people. So with gladness and simplicity or sincerity of heart they praise God having favor with all the people. Now this favor will be temporary. As we'll see as we go through the book of Acts, don't take don't expect that you know always the church should have the you know the favored position or be viewed at favorably by society. That's not the way it was. Uh, For the majority of the early church, this is at the very beginning, we have an initial time of of peace and prosperity, Um, but things are going to get rough here for a point, but what we see in the book of Acts is that though the circumstances change, the joy does not. So their joy is bigger than their circumstances. Whether the circumstances are good or bad, you're going to see a consistent joy stay throughout. But also notice it says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now I want us to give some praise and some acknowledgement to God today because some plant and others water, but it's the Lord who gives the increase. But we can praise God, you know, in, in the life of our church that we've seen people go from death to life, from without faith in Jesus to having faith in Jesus. And Every day, day by day, this is continuing on, that God is adding to his church, because we're part of something that's bigger than just what we are in this basement. We're part of something bigger than that. And so today, you can give thanks and you can rejoice that even on this solemn day in our nation, that there will be people in this nation and people in other nations around the world who are going to fall on their knees before Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner." But I believe in you. I trust you. You died for my sins. You rose from the dead. That might not be the exact wording, of course, but it's going to come from the sincerity of their heart that they're going to stop trusting in themselves or some other thing and they're going to start begin you know, with a, a new faith in Jesus and they're going to start walking according to his ways. And there will be people today all over this world who will be doing that. And it will be great celebration in heaven on this day over that victory. And so a lot of times it's about a perspective. A lot of life is about perspective. And so my encouragement for us this morning is to have great joy and to be part of that. To be part of that even this week is we have opportunity to to be generous people in one way or another. In really multiple ways. You're going to have an opportunity this week to be generous probably in a material way. You're going to have opportunity this week to be generous with encouragement or generous with grace or generous with mercy. You're going to have opportunity to be generous with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when it comes to those things, if you have a generous person, you have a joyful person. I've yet to find a stingy, well, about anything, stingy with grace, stingy with money, stingy with peace, with mercy, with encouragement, You you rarely find stingy and joyful together. You don't find stingy and joyful together. But when you find generosity in heart and spirit, you usually find joy. It's uh, with simplicity. You know I think sometimes we can overcomplicate it, but those things go together, and I don't think they're really pull them apart. Joy and generosity. And one of the things that I'm most thankful for in our church is that I've seen, I mean, just week after week, there's always always a story of generosity. I'm afraid we're not, of some way or another, I'm afraid we're not the best at telling our story or telling stories. You know, because I think sometimes even in our history, some of that gets lost. Uh, you know, right after 9 11 happened, you know, we were meeting in the bar at the time, and, you know, it was a bar owner who called and said, We need to have a prayer meeting. You know that opportunity came about through you know a reciprocal generosity. Came about through a reciprocal generosity. But what I want to say to us on that is you know be encouraged because I'm, I I see it. You know again I I'm, I'm, I almost have to apologize because I don't think we're great at telling the stories. But I mean there I don't I can't remember a week that's ever gone by where there hasn't been something where somebody has made. A sacrifice, or that somebody has, has, you know, been generous to someone else in the life of this church in over 18 years, and that's something to give thanks and to praise God for. But we're part of something bigger than us. But we get to participate it when we say yes to Jesus. When we say yes to Jesus, when we're willing to say yes to Jesus at any cost, we get to participate more in the joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We praise you, God. Help us to exalt you and to lift our voices high to you. Lord, forgive us, because I I think a lot of times we are just kind of historically bad about uh, celebrating the good and the wins. Um, Lord, I'm, I'm thankful to walk and to be family with people who see all the time given of themselves to be a blessing to others. Lord, no, we're not always generous. We confess that to you, Lord. You know, sometimes we're individually and collectively stingy with different things. But Lord, we thank you that you don't give up on us. We thank you that you're always seeking our best. Lord, we pray that even in our community, we would have people who would be going to where the spiritual action is and and not running from it. Help us to be bold in our faith knowing that we have a victorious King, a victorious Savior. So Jesus, we take that bread and that cup this morning. Help us to have a right reverence for you and a right joy. Because you have done it all. In your name, Jesus we